It's good to be with you this morning. We're starting a new series. Um, we're going to be in the book of John. So we finished, anybody remember what we finished last week? Haggai. So we finished Haggai last week, and uh, we're starting a series this week that I think is going gonna, is gonna to build on Haggai actually really well, and, um, and, and kind of transition us a little bit. Uh, I, was, I was talking to somebody uh, this past week, because I, I, wrestled, I wrestled with where to go. My heart was kind of in a couple of different places. Um, as, as to, in fact, I even think I said last week in, in one of the messages that we were going to go in a different direction, and then after the message, I, I just was like, oh, not really feeling that. And so I, I was wrestling back and forth this week, and, and, and I was having a conversation with somebody over breakfast Monday morning, and, and um, he's like, well, where, you know, where, where are you going next? Where's your heart at? And I'm like, I just want to talk about Jesus. Like, I, I just feel like we just need to, I just want to talk about Jesus for a little bit. So we're going to spend seven weeks talking about Jesus. In particular, um, there's, there's, there's the section in the book of John in the first 11 chapters. And so if you study the Gospels, okay, so the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, they're, the, they're the books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus, okay? And so that's why they're called the Gospels, the good news, okay? So the good news of Christ. And so, and so Matthew, Mark, and Luke... They take a different take on the Gospels than John does. Okay, so like, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about the genealogy. They talk about the nativity in great detail, which is Jesus' birth. So typically around Christmas time, we spend a lot of time in Luke because Luke was a doctor and he was very, very detailed in his writing. And so Luke details the nativity, the birth of Christ, extremely well. And, and so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do that John doesn't talk about the nativity very much. He doesn't go into the genealogy. He dives right into the ministry of Jesus. And so we pick up in John chapter 2 today, and Jesus is already 30 years old. John, and, and it's hard to pick a favorite, but people always ask, like, what's your favorite gospel, right? Or what's your favorite book of the Bible or, or things like that. John's my favorite gospel because I love the storytelling of John. I love it. I love the storytelling of John. Like to me, John is the gospel writer that you want to be camping with and sitting around a fire, right? And just having him like tell you, can you tell I was camping this past week, Mike? Okay, like, and just having him tell you the stories of Jesus because he, he just, he, he's a storyteller. And John takes the first 11 chapters and he does it a little bit later, but John was big on the signs, he was big on the signs of Jesus, and, and, and in particular, seven signs of Jesus that we're going to focus on for the next seven weeks. We're going to take a week of sign. And in fact, he says in John chapter 20, verse 21, many other signs and wonders were, were done that were not written in this book, but these were written so that you may have life. So that you may have life. Which is interesting when we get to the meaning of the sign that we're talking about this week, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. And so when we think about signs... Right? And think about signs. We, Dylan did a great job putting this image together of, of some different signs. Right? We, we see signs all the time. Stop signs mean you should stop. Right? Not that little running thing that, that some of you young people do. Right? Not that, it doesn't mean you coast through the intersection. Right? It means stop. Right? Stop means stop. But signs aren't that important in and of themselves. But they point to something bigger. 
right? Especially when, you, when you're talking about a destination. They point to something bigger. And there's, and, and there's typically a lot of meaning behind signs, right? Like, I am every doctor's office, office's worst dream, worst nightmare. There it is. I can talk, I promise. Um, and because, you know, you walk into a doctor's office and in the examination room or in the hospital, you see all these signs that say, do not what? Touch. <laughs> Which if they didn't have the sign there, chances are, Mark, I'd leave the thing alone and not just t- not touch it at all, not even give it a thought. But n- then I see the sign. I saw the sign, right? Then I see the sign and I think, well, that, I've got to touch it now, right? I've got, I've, I've got to touch it. Okay, there it is, right? Another me right here, right? I've got to touch it now. And so, like, man, my favorite thing is a little blood pressure cord, that thing that coils up so tight, but then you can, pull, you can pull that thing clear across the whole doctor's office. It's awesome. Like, I can't wait to show Ezra this thing because he could do some real damage to his sisters with this, with this blood pressure thing because you, you pull that thing and it just keeps pulling. It keeps pulling, and um, it drives Kristen crazy uh, when when I do this. But I see buttons, and I just want to know what they do. Right? Do not. But but and so it's an invitation to touch. Okay. Anyway, you get the picture, right? And so and so signs, right? But they point to something greater. And do not touch, right? When it comes to the doctor's office, that's for your good, more than likely, because you could probably do some damage if you touched the wrong buttons or set off alarms and cause. Um, panic throughout the entire doctor's office that something's happening in the room that's probably not even happening, and I'm not necessarily speaking from personal experience. Right? But John, in his seven signs here, and there's actually eight throughout the whole book, but there's, and, and, and more even, but, but seven major signs in the first 11 chapters of, of the book of John that we're going to talk through, they point to something deeper. They point to something greater about Jesus, and that's his authority. These seven signs that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks, they point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the one that they were waiting for. He is the Savior of the world. And so John spends a good portion of his book making that case through these signs. And so I want to look at the first one this week, John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And, and, and the sign that we're looking at this week, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is water into wine. Now, can, can, we have a, can we have a quick conversation, just, just real quick before we even dive in and read, read John chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through, we're going to go through verse 11. In all my years of preaching and studying God's Word, this is probably one of the most misinterpreted, miscommunicated, stories of Jesus. I mean, this is the first miracle that Jesus does, and yet we all want to turn it into a conversation within God's house about how much we can or can't drink. That got no response at 8.30, and I told the 8.30 service, the 6.30 service will be pumped when we talk about that, right? But that's not the point. 
is not the point of Jesus' first miracle, right? In fact, it has so little to do with that. And so today, I want to unpack this for you. And and some of this is going to feel, I know, very academic. But for us to really grasp why this was so important, for us to grasp why this was the first miracle of Jesus, for us to grasp the significance behind what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 2 and why John dives right into this and why it's the beginning of his ministry, we've got to get the context and the background of what he's saying, what he's doing. So you with me? You ready? Let's look at the signs. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now pause. I want to go ahead and knock this out real quick. John never calls the mother of Jesus Mary. He always uses the mother of Jesus. He never uses Mary's name. We're going to talk about that a lot, but I wanted you to notice it because you're going to see it a few times here in this exchange with Mary, right? But we all know it's, it's Mary is the mother of Jesus, right? Um, but uh, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, another thing I want to deal with real quick before all of the ladies tune out the rest of the message because of Jesus' response there. Because some of us may read that, woman, what does this have to do with me? But you have to understand, this term right here, Jesus saying, woman, what does this have to do? That was a respectful way to speak to women in the first century. Okay, woman, what is it? Some of you are laughing like it ain't anymore, so don't even try it, right? <laughs> I saw a couple ladies over here to remain nameless that were like, eh, don't think about it, right? Um, but, but in this time, right, some people read that and they're probably like, Jesus, so disrespectful in the beginning of his ministry. No, it was actually a very respect. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, but I just wanted to give you that before you... Um, Got too far with your thoughts there. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Underline that. I know it doesn't seem like much, but that is huge with the story as a whole here. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Another important thing to note. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. We all know why that happened, right? Just making sure you're with me. But you've kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's powerful. So powerful. So powerful. All right, you ready? We ready to get the the meat of this story? And so in order to understand each of the seven signs, we've got to get the setting 
Okay, we've got to get the setting. The setting is super important when we're looking at the Gospels, right? Um, You may have heard it put this way before. I I may have said this before. Um, In order to understand the text, we've got to get the context, okay? That's another way of saying the setting is extremely important. There's two things about the setting in this story, in this sign, that I want us to see. And the first is, we're at a wedding, right? We're at a wedding. Weddings how many of you know weddings are major social events? They're big deals, right? They're big deals. I think Kristen and I have invited ourselves to one wedding because we didn't want to feel left out, right? FOMO. I mean, just, I mean, they're big deals, right? They're major social events. That's sad, but true. They're often elaborate and expensive occasions, right? Requiring much planning. So fun. How many of you have ever planned a wedding? Some, some of you. How many of you have ever planned a wedding for your daughter? Anybody? Oh, man. We just need to stop and pray. Right? It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. And, and, and so they require much planning. And so weddings in the first century were also important special events. They were even a little bit more elaborate. Um, they had a, a little bit of a greater social significance than the weddings of our day. Because, see, a wedding in the first century was a community event. It was a community event. Often the entire village would be invited. And first century weddings were also lengthy events lasting, get this, as long as seven days. Not seven hours. <laughs> That's crazy. John's like, eh. Right? Seven days a week that a wedding could have lasted in the first century. But the social significance of first century weddings also depended, get this, here's why we're here in John chapter 2, right, and why this is so important, depended on the quality of the hospitality they provided, i.e., how good was the food. Right? I was talking, same conversation on Monday at breakfast, and I was talking with, with a friend of mine about a wedding I did last summer, and, he, and his first question, he, he's also a pastor, he's like, how was the food? Right? Because that's, that's how us pastors, we, we, we rate weddings. <laughs> right? I mean, the wedding's cute, it's great. How was the food of the reception? Right? <laughs> That's not entirely true. Okay, but anyway, um, but, but, but in the first century, the weddings were, were, were extremely important and depended on the quality of the hospitality they provided. And hospitality was vital to a family's social standing in the first century. The hospitality was vital to a family's social standing in the first century. And a failure in this area, such as running out of wine, could bring great public shame upon a family. Get this, it might also potentially subject the groom to a lawsuit. That's how intense this was. That's how important this was. All right. So you see the importance of going and kind of getting the meat and the context of where we're at and looking at the history of the thing? Because this was a big deal. They had run out of wine and this was a serious matter. Okay? This was a serious matter. So, they're at a wedding. The second part of the setting that I want us to get to is the woman. Now, again, we've already talked about it, right? The woman is Mary, right? The shortage of wine at the wedding in Cana led Mary, who may have been, probably was related to the groom's family, to seek out a solution to the pressing problem. Okay? And so this, this led, right, Mary to seek out a solution to the pressing problem. 
All right, so, so let, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring this to life for us a little bit, okay? So let's say Emily, right, mother of the groom, comes over uh, to April, right here, her sister, okay? Sister, right? So this would have been Mary, okay? This would have been mother of the groom. Okay, so Emily, right, mother of the groom, comes over to April and says, April, you're not going to believe this. We've run out of, we've run out of wine. We've run out of wine. What's April do? April looks at Emily and says, go back. Everything's okay. Entertain the guests. Handle your son. Make sure, make sure everything's together. I got this. What's April do? She goes to Subway. <laughs> right? I, I know I said we ran out of wine, but let's say we run out of food, right? April, go, April, April handles it, Right? Handles it because this is important to her sister and the whole family because we've got to keep the quality of the hospitality top notch, right? And so mom goes to Mary and says, we've run out of wine. What's Mary do? Goes to Jesus. Why does she go to Jesus? I'm glad you asked, Ian. She goes to Jesus, right, because Joseph has more than likely passed away. We can't confirm that by the dates, but more than likely passed away. Jesus is the oldest son of Mary, so he's the man of the house. Doesn't necessarily just go to him because he's Messiah, although we see later that he does, that she does, right? That's, that's the real reason, right? But she's thinking, she's going to him, right? We're thinking, we could read this, she's going to him because he's the man of the house. Hey, Jesus, guess what? I got to go handle my sister. They're out of wine. And look at the exchange again, right? I love this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I want you to see that Mary, Mary doesn't deal with Jesus's nonsense. Now, we know it's not nonsense because we're going to look at what Jesus is saying there in just a moment, right? But what does she do? She, she doesn't even address Jesus again, right? Jesus is like, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And I picture her walking off and Jesus is just like, what am I supposed to do? Right? This coming to life for you yet? I mean, it's so cool, right? And so, so Mary goes back, deals with Emily, right? April, you know, she goes back trying to comfort Emily. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus, man of the house, you know, Messiah, he's going to die. He's going to save the whole world, right? He's going to handle it. He's going to handle it. I got all my confidence in him. What confidence in the Savior? She walked away. Told the servants, do whatever he tells you. We're going to get to that more in just a few minutes, too. Where am I at? Okay, covered that, covered that, covered that. Okay, so the key to understanding Jesus' response, right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, is to focus on the conclusion of his statement, my hour has not yet come, because what he's doing there is he's turning his mother Mary's attention to his mission. My hour has not yet come. What was his hour? The cross. That was the hour that he was referring to. His death on the cross was his hour. So Jesus was telling his mother that his enduring purpose was to fulfill the plan of his father. And at the wedding in Cana, Jesus performed a sign that spoke profound truths about his identity, his mission, and his purpose. 
So let's get into more of the sign, turning the water into wine. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul describes the radical change of the new birth. Paul tells the church at Corinth, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When Jesus reaches into our lives and brings us to himself, we too experience a radical change. We experience a radical change. We become something entirely new. And when Jesus turned water into wine at Cana, he was broadcasting to the watching world that he possessed the power to bring about radical change. And he did it in such a way that we see the dawning of the new. Because what does he say? There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I told you to underline this, star this, because this is huge. We just talked about seven weeks in the book of Haggai where they're rebuilding the temple, right? And they're, and they're, they're ceremonial washings. They're under the old covenant, right? All of these different things. And here there's six stone jars that were used for those ceremonial washings. And what is the object that Jesus uses to turn water into wine but their old traditional practices? Behold, I'm making old things new. I mean, I mean, these servants, they were just told by the mother of Jesus, Mary, right, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus looks at these six stone jars that are used for washing and saying, go fill those jars to the brim. They've got to be thinking, who is this guy? I mean, granted, they would have known Jesus, again, 30 years old at this time. Mary's probably like 45, 50 years old, dating back and, and looking, at, looking at different things and, 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 and bringing it up to speed, right? And so they would have known Jesus, and, and they would have seen Jesus probably doing some strange things, like not sinning. Okay, this guy's perfect, and we're not, like, that just doesn't add up, right? So they would have probably noticed he's not like the rest of us. And then Mary saying what she said, right? Do whatever he tells you to. But yet he's telling us to get these six stone jars that were used to cleanse ourselves so that we could go into the temple, were used for completely different things, fill them to the brim. What's he going to do with this? Are we going to, like, have baptism? Are we going to, you know, wash each other's feet? Are we going to, like, what's, what's the purpose of this? What's the point of this? The wine was abundant because the six pots, if you add it up, six pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. In the first service, I said it was 300, and I got a lot of flack for it because I couldn't do math. But as I said in the first service, the nice thing about today is you can blame everything on the pandemic. <laughs> right? So six times 30 is 300. It's the pandemic's fault. Right? Because it's really 180. Right? Chances are they had about 150 gallons of wine here, right? About 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a, that's a lot of wine. And it's abundant because Jesus commanded the servants to fill the pots to the very brim. Jesus made an abundance of wine. And wine in the Old Testament, particularly fine wine, is connected to the work of the Messiah. And the wine Jesus made was the finest quality. And we see that because the, the master of ceremonies, the master 
of the feast, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus made the finest wine. Do you see what's being revealed here? Do you see the glory of Jesus being revealed here? With this sign, Jesus was declaring that He was the Messiah and He has come to establish a new order. The pots once used for the ceremonial washing of the Jews have been transformed into vessels of fruitfulness and joy. Out with the old, in with the new. The new has become. Unlike old covenant Judaism, which has run out of wine, the ministry of Jesus is brimming over with an abundance of wine. The old has gone, the new has come. So how do we respond to this? C.S. Lewis once said, God doesn't do parlor tricks. I love that. Don't you? God doesn't do parlor tricks. God doesn't show up. And we see that here, right? Like, what does this have to do with me? Right? What does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus doesn't do parlor tricks, meaning that God doesn't simply perform miracles to impress us. Rather, when God performs a miracle, He has a specific purpose in mind. And not only does He have a specific purpose in mind, but He expects a response, a specific response to it. And we see that in verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, first manifested His glory. He showed His glory. He showed He is Messiah. I mean, we see it in parentheses there. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew where this had come from. And then the second part, and His disciples believed in Him. And His disciples believed in Him. What was the purpose of this? To show His glory that the disciples might believe in Him. So I believe there's three things we can take away from this sign. The first is this. Look for God in the ordinary. Look for God in the ordinary. See, because see, here's, here's the deal. God wants to come in to our daily routines. He wants to come into our daily routines. See, God wants an invitation to your wedding. God wants, an, God wants an invitation to lunch today. God wants, an, God wants an invitation to a car game later or a cruise or, or whatever. God wants in on our relationships and our marriages, our friends, our families. See, our God, and, and I know we hear this, but I'm, 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 a little, I'm a little confused as to whether or not we know this. Our God is not a Sunday-only God. Our God is not a Sunday-only only God. One that we can only worship one day a week and then put on the shelf for the next six days. I love the way that a pastor that used to be out in Seattle, now he pastors a church in Arizona, used to put it. That we come into church on Sundays and we celebrate all the things that God's done throughout the week. See, see our worship, our corporate worship, which is what we're doing here, our corporate worship is to, be, is to be out of the overflow of our individual worship. 
Our corporate worship is to be out of, out of the overflow of our individual worship. And you know, you know, one of the things we've downplayed so much now as a result of a of, of virtual church, and, and some churches have been virtual for a long time, one of the things that's getting downplayed so much today is corporate worship. But you know what most of the New Testament after the Gospels is pointed to, starting in Acts? Corporate worship. The church. Missionary journeys in Acts. Paul went on three of them. Why? To plant churches and then to go check on their health. Corporate worship. We are meant in the body of Christ to do this. To be together. But it's not a substitute for individual worship. I hope you see that they're meant to go hand in hand. God is a personal God that wants a relationship with us, not an hour a week or 75 minutes a week or however long I decide to talk. God wants in on our lives. Hudson Taylor, who was a famous missionary, once said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And here, here's what we do. If I stand up, am I out of the camera? Because I'm about to go crazy. Okay. I've sat down for like four months and preached. Here's what we do. Breaking new ground. Here's what we do. I won't get six feet. I, right here. It's my limit. Okay, God, you can have my job, my marriage, my kids. You can, you can have all these things, but my finances, I'm going to keep from you. Right? Because if, because if you take control of my finances, I can't even understand my finances, God, so if you take control of my finances, you're going to mess them all up. But I love what Hudson Taylor said. If you're not, if he's not, Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. It doesn't work. And so many people say, I like to keep God out of my politics. If He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. We've got to look for God in the ordinary. So we've got to look out for God to show up. Secondly, expect God to do the extraordinary. We've got to look for God in the ordinary, but expect God to do the extraordinary. So for me, there's two things here. The first is this, our expectancy. Our expectancy. We used to say something around here we haven't said in a while. That God will meet us at the, at the level of our expectation. God will meet us at the level of our expectation. Right? What do we come into His house expecting? Right? What do, we, what do we come into His house expecting? How many of you know, right? You're, you're, you're going to, to, that, to that friend gathering and you just know it's going to be a bad time so you walk up in there with a bad attitude. You don't even want to be there. You're counting down the minutes. Your wife told you we, we just got to stay 15 minutes and at 13 minutes you're going to get in the coat. Right? 
You told me 15 minutes, right? You were set out to have a bad time before you even got there, right? We do that with church. Right? We do that with church. I kid you not. First church I pastored, I, I didn't even pastor. First church I was a youth pastor at, I would preach, and if you were going over 25 minutes, the deacons in the back would literally, would literally, Douglas, stand up lean up against the back wall and start doing this. Did you not? Did you not? What were they expecting in church? It wasn't about God moving. It was about getting out on time. God will meet us at the level of our expectations. The second thing here, we've got to come to grips with this. We avoid it a lot, I believe, in the church because we're not quite sure what to do with it because there's someone actually in control that's not us. And that's the extraordinary. God specializes in doing things in our lives. Like, and here's, here's the thing that I've never quite been able to understand about us. Me and, and, and other people that I hang around. When we pray... We, we ask God to show up and do things. But then we're upset when He shows up and does things in ways that we weren't expecting. Why pray? Expect God to do the extraordinary. Expect God to do the extraordinary. In verse 5, his mother said to his servants, do whatever the Lord tells you. In the English English standard that I'm reading from, do whatever He tells you. NIV says, do whatever the Lord tells you. So Mary's even saying, "I I know this is the Lord, right? I know this is the Lord. You don't have to do what I tell you. You don't have to do what Emily tells you. You don't have to do what April tells you. Because if we listen to God's voice, He'll direct our steps. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. And sometimes, He'll do something crazy. He may call you to move to Maine in the middle of January. He may call you to merge churches. He may call you to sell two buildings and try to build one. He may call you to do something crazy. So unexpected. So impossible that we'll just have to label it extraordinary. Or maybe a miracle. Number three. This one seems pretty self-explanatory of what we've talked about. Put your faith in the God behind the signs. Put your faith in the God behind the signs. Verse 11, this, the first signs Jesus did at Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. See, in, it, um, in His Gospel, John never uses the word miracle. 
or great work, like the other gospel writers use. He always uses the word sign. And like we talked about in the beginning, a sign doesn't draw attention to itself. It draws attention to something greater than itself. The signs are not that important in and of themselves. I mean, it's important. I know some of us follow signs and directions and all those different things, but no one has ever said, I really want to go look at that sign. It's on my bucket list. Right? No one's ever said that. I mean, maybe, maybe the main sign that's, you know. No, no, I don't think anybody's ever said that. The sign only exists to point to something greater than itself. And so it is with the miracles that John organizes his gospel around. He gives us seven primary ones, a bonus ones in the epilogue, and all of these point to something greater than a sign, Jesus. And so my question for us this morning is twofold. Number one, are you experiencing the glory of God in Jesus? And I I want you to really ask yourself this, because it's been a confusing four months, five months almost now. I really want you to ask yourself this. Is Jesus Lord of all here? Like, like think about it, because you, 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 you may have answered, well, duh, right back in February or March, but now, like, there's some things that have crept in. There's, there's some things that have changed, right? I mean, I mean, we can all agree with that, right? So, so, so I really want you to ask yourself this morning, twofold. Number one, is Jesus Lord of all in your life? Is he Lord of all? Are you experiencing the glory of God in your life? And y'all know, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Moses in Exodus 32, where he's standing on the mountain, he's leading the Israelites, right? The golden calf has just happened. The Israelites had lost heart again, and they built this golden calf. They were worshiping. Aaron was hanging out, like trying to deny the whole thing, right? And Moses comes down from the mountain and sees all this, is so disappointed, rebukes him, goes back up on the mountain to be with God where you're supposed to be in the first place. And anyway, 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 it's not a message about Exodus 32. But Moses goes back up on the mountain and says, God, if you're not going to lead us, I'm not going. And God says, yeah, Moses, I'll lead you. And Moses, it wasn't enough for Moses. Moses is like, listen, if you're leading us and you're going before us, I need to see your glory. Like, like, I'm not leaving this place until I experience the glory of the Lord. Like, I'm not leaving this place. And so God says, okay, well, you, no man can see my face and live, so I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'll allow all my glory to pass by you. I'll cover you with my hand. And after all my glory has passed by you, I'll remove my hand, and you can see the back of the robe. What happened to the church that wouldn't leave the house until they experienced the glory of God? I mean, what would it look like? If we said, okay, God, you've got it. All distractions away. I'm not leaving the moment. I'm not leaving the mountain until I experience your glory. I'm not leaving the house until I know you're with me. Are we experiencing the glory of God? And is he Lord of all? Is he Lord of all? I just got a new phone case yesterday, so I can throw my phone on the ground. Did y'all see that? I'm testing it. Testing the durability. That word glory, just so we're clear, I want to make sure there's nothing left unclear for you in this. There's greatness. It's like a greatness plus. Are you experiencing the greatness of God in your life? which is a result of Him being Lord of all.
It's twofold. So, so if your answer to the first question is no, I'm really, I'm really not experiencing the glory of God. Things are a little numb right now. Things are a little mundane. Things are a little routine. Things are a little blah. Well, is Jesus Lord of all? Is He Lord of all? Is He Lord of all? Are you expecting Him to do something awesome in your life? Amazing in your life? We're going to sing about the greatness of God. And uh, we're going to sing a song in just a few minutes. It's called Greater You, Lord. And it's the bridge or the chorus that says, it's your breath in my lungs. That's looking for God in the ordinary, isn't it? I mean, just as simple as a breath. It's your breath in my lungs. And the writers of the song, right? You can almost see them saying, it's his breath in our lungs, so we'll pour out our praise. We'll pour out our praise. Right? It's not ours anyway. It's because of the glory of the Lord that we get to breathe, that we have breath. So what would it take for you today to experience God's glory in your life and for Him to be the Lord of all? What are some things that you need to lay aside for Him to be the Lord of all? I don't know about y'all. Sometimes it's just good to look at Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. And remind, and remind each other of how awesome He is. So I pray you've been reminded of that this morning.